Autoritate Domini nostri Gesù Cristi, Beatorum Apostolorum Petri et Paoli Ache Nostra, pronunziamus, declaramus et definimus, divinitus revelatum Doma Est, immaculatem Dei Parame Semper Virginem, expleto terrestris vite cursu, fuiste corpore et anima ad esleste in gloriam assuntam. That was the voice of the Pope, of Pope Pius XII, speaking to the world, proclaiming to the world the dogma of the Assumption. That was in the year 1950. Almost 100 years earlier, a Pope who also bore the name Pius, Pope Pius IX, had spoken to a world in danger of rejecting the supernatural in favor of a materialistic creed, which had for its only dogmas the findings of the scientists. On that day in 1854, Pope Pius IX proclaimed the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. On the first day of November, almost a century later, when Pius XII defined the dogma of the Assumption, he proclaimed, as did his predecessor, belief in the mysteries that are beyond measurement by the yardstick of scientific knowledge. He was then in the 11th year of his pontificate. Within that year, he had celebrated the golden jubilee of his ordination to the priesthood. He had reached his 74th year. Eugenio Pacelli was born on the second day of March, 1876, in the ancient district of Ponte in Rome. A Roman, and the first Roman to be elected Pope in two centuries, Eugenio Pacelli was born into a family which had given generations of devoted service to the Holy See. His grandfather, a lawyer and leading administrator of the Papal States, was founder of the newspaper L'Osservatore Romano. His father, a lawyer of distinction, was dean of the Vatican Bar. A lawyer in the third generation of that family, Francesco, brother of Eugenio, played a leading part in the drafting of the Lateran Treaty, which was the basis of reconciliation between the Papal See and the King of Italy. At one time, it was hoped that Eugenio Pacelli would follow in the family tradition and become a lawyer, but the future Pope's vocation was for the priesthood. On the Easter Sunday of the year 1899, he was ordained to the priesthood and on the following morning celebrated his first Mass in the Borghese Chapel of the Basilica of St. Mary Major, where is venerated the Byzantine Madonna, which tradition suggests was painted by St. Luke the Evangelist. The choice of the Basilica of St. Mary Major by the priest who was later to become the Pope, who proclaimed the dogma of the Assumption, tells of Eugenio Pacelli's desire to dedicate his life in the priesthood to the Mother of God. His Ricordino, his ordination card, stresses that wish. In remembrance, in the year 1899, Eugenio Pacelli, Roman, was ordained a priest on the Feast of Christ's Resurrection and celebrated his first Holy Mass the next day in the Borghese Chapel of the Liberian Basilica. Sublime Mother of God, who desires to be called the salvation of the Roman people, and at whose altar I offered for the first time the holy sacrifice to the eternal God, remain close to me. In the two years following his ordination, Don Eugenio devoted himself to the pastoral work of the parochial priest, pastor, preacher, confessor. This was the priestly life to which he had been drawn, but another destiny awaited him. Less than two years after his ordination, in the spring of 1901, Monsignor Gaspari, then secretary of the Congregation for Extraordinary Ecclesiastical Affairs, decided to put to other uses 
the talents of the young priest whose scholastic career had been such a brilliant one. Don Eugenio was invited to begin a diplomatic career as an apprendista, a junior official in the Congregation for Extraordinary Ecclesiastical Affairs. The years of training, years during which he found time for the pastoral work which he loved, hearing confessions in the small church where he had served mass as a boy, preaching, giving religious instruction to the children of the parish, prepared the future pope for the dominant part he was to play on the world stage. His gifts and talents were used, shaped and moulded by Gaspari's wise direction. In 1901, he was sent to London, bearing the condolences of Pope Leo XIII to Edward VII on the death of Queen Victoria. Later, when he was a doctor of canon and civil law and holder of an important chair in the Academy of Noble Ecclesiastics, he was offered the professorship in Roman law at the Catholic University of America. Pius X, however, requested him to remain in Rome and continue his work as a consultor of the Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office and collaborator with Cardinal Gaspari in the work of codifying the canon law of the Church. A little later, Gaspari becoming Secretary of State in the Pontificate of Benedict XV, Father Pacelli was promoted Secretary of the Congregation for Extraordinary Ecclesiastical Affairs. The year was 1914. On the 20th day of August, Pope Pius X had died heartbroken by the coming of the war whose horrors he had foretold. To his successor, Pope Benedict XV, fell the task of alleviating the miseries of a world at war. One of the great tasks which Benedict XV set himself was the alleviation of the hardships endured by prisoners of war. Before the end of 1914, the Papal Secretary of State opened negotiations with the belligerent governments for an exchange of prisoners. The Vatican organization which conducted these negotiations was the Congregation of Extraordinary Ecclesiastical Affairs, its secretary, Eugenio Pacelli. It was through his efforts that soon more than 30,000 French and German prisoners of war were released from concentration camps and allowed to return through Switzerland to their homes. Civilian prisoners to the number of close on 25,000 also owed their freedom to Pacelli's diplomatic skill. Children, aged folk, doctors, priests, invalids were set free, hostages were released. Wounded soldiers were transferred to Switzerland. All through the early years of war, that work of charity went on. Its administrative side, so well organized by Monsignor Pacelli, that when the Second World War broke out, it was possible to put the system of relief into immediate operation. That work for the cause of peace in a world riven by war was of vital significance in the life of the priest who was to become a Pope of Peace. In the December of 1916, the governments of the Central Powers let it be known that they might welcome peace action initiated by the Vatican. The Pope's choice of a mediator was quickly made. Eugenio Pacelli was appointed to the recently vacated Nunciatura at Munich, an office which technically concerned only Bavaria, but which for all practical purposes embraced the entire German Reich. The new nuncio was appointed titular Archbishop of Sardes and was consecrated by the Pope himself on the 13th day of May, 1917. It was the beginning of an important phase in the career of the Pope-to-be. Within a month of his appointment, the new nuncio had met the Kaiser and had presented to him a letter containing the peace proposals drafted by the Pope. A man of aristocratic, likable and distinguished appearance, with great intelligence and impeccable manners, 
the perfect model of a high prelate of the Catholic Church. That is how the emperor described the nuncio. But the move towards peace was not fruitful. In Germany, the power of the militarists ruled out all hopes of a negotiated peace. On the Allied side, progress towards peace was blocked by the secret proviso of the Treaty of London, whereby it had been agreed that the Pope would not be permitted to play any part in negotiations for peace. The peace mission failed, but the work of the nuncio went on. Work that entailed unceasing visits to the crowded prison camps of Germany. The ending of the war did not bring an ending to the nuncio's work in Germany. New trials faced him. Revolution broke out in defeated Germany. Alone of the diplomatic corps, Archbishop Acelli remained at his post in Munich, and he was singled out by the revolutionary forces for attack. Bombs and hand grenades were hurled at his residence. An explosion shattered the window of the room in which he sat at work. A mob armed with pistols and bombs invaded his home. The then military attaché of the Italian legation tells of that night of terror. I went immediately to the nunciature, where I saw seven bandits, each one carrying in one hand a drawn dagger and in the other hand a revolver aimed at Nuncio Pacelli, who was armed only with the cross of Christ that hung at his breast. Through his calm and undaunted demeanor, he succeeded in holding in check his attackers, for the fearlessness of this unarmed man finally conquered their arms. The next day, still more serious danger threatened Annuncio. On the order of Egelhofer, commander of the Red Army, the palace of the Nunciature was invaded by several bands of Reds who were armed with machine guns. The armed mob surrounded the Nuncio as he left his palace. They milled about him, shouting insults and threats. Pacelli, dressed in his bishop's cassock, faced them. My dear people, what have you got against me? I am here to work for you. We are all God's children. Besides, don't think I'm afraid of you, for I have an unfailing weapon that protects me against all danger. At once, with the instinct of the mob to justify itself, the armed rioters hurled at the nuncio accusations of illegally carrying arms. Indeed, I am armed. He pointed to the pectoral cross which hung about his neck. And my weapon is more powerful than your machine guns and grenades. Now let me proceed. I bless you. He went on his way unmolested, and that was the last occasion on which he was threatened with mob violence. But those days of revolution in Munich had another and important bearing on the career of the nuncio to Bavaria. After the revolution, there came into being the federation of states that became the German Republic. Archbishop Pacelli was transferred to Berlin and became papal nuncio to the entire German Reich. The nuncio's mission was fruitful. He concluded with Bavaria a concordat of 16 points that was hailed as a masterpiece of diplomatic art and juridical acumen. He concluded a solemn agreement of 14 articles with the Reich, a noteworthy success in papal diplomacy in a country where recent foreign policy had been based on the slogan, Free from Rome. The mission to the German Reich came to an end in 1929, when it was announced that Nuncio Pacelli had been recalled to Rome and would be created cardinal. At a farewell meeting, given on behalf of German Catholics, the future cardinal looked to the future. He said, My mission in Germany has come to an end. A greater, more embracing task in the heart of the universal church now begins. I go back from whence I came, back to the tomb of the man of the rock under Michelangelo's dome, back to the living Peter in the Vatican. To be close to Peter means to be close to Christ. 
At this moment, you perhaps think more of the purple, which, although I do not deserve it, the Pope will place upon my shoulders. But the thought in my own mind is one that warns me that the burden of the cross will not become lighter, but heavier. The deepest and most real meaning of the Cardinalate lies not in external honour and glory, but in the intimate and close participation in the cares and fatigues, the responsibility and burdens, the griefs and sorrows of the Holy Father. I go the way in which God, by the mouth of the pontiff, commands me to go. I go this way fully conscious of my weakness, but believing in him who uses the weak to put the strong to shame. What I was is nothing. What I am is little. But what I shall become is eternal. What I was is nothing. What I am is little. But what I shall become is eternal. A very few weeks later, the new cardinal was called upon to undertake fresh and heavy responsibilities. With the conclusion of the Lateran Pact, which brought about agreement between the Vatican and the Italian government, the 80 years old Cardinal Gaspari felt that his life's major work had been accomplished. He asked the Pope to accept his resignation from the office of Secretary of State. On the 7th day of February, 1930, in his 54th year, Eugenio Pacelli received from Pope Pius XI the letter which told that a new chapter in his life story had opened. Now that we have agreed, as we have not without sorrow, agreed today to satisfy the insistent wish of the Lord Cardinal Pietro Gaspari and accept his resignation as Secretary of State, we have decided, Coram Domino, to call upon you with this our letter to succeed him in this important and delicate office and to appoint you to this active task, a far from easy one. An important and delicate office, an active task a far from easy one. These words well sum up the office of the man who becomes the papal minister of external affairs. The Secretary of State is, in effect, the Prime Minister of the Church, the immediate assistant to the Pope in administration of the Church. He is head of the Papal Secretariat of Ecclesiastical Affairs and also head of the Congregation of Extraordinary Ecclesiastical Affairs, the body which, by canon law, must guide papal diplomacy. Those years of diplomatic work were full and trying ones for the Secretary of State. They were the years in which the Nazi party in Germany clashed with the Church. The days when the Anschluss of 1938 brought the Catholic State of Austria within the German Reich. The years of friction between the government of Mussolini and the Vatican on the vital question of youth training and education. The years of the Spanish Civil War. The days of protracted dispute between the Catholic bishops of Malta and the government of Britain. Against this stormy background, Cardinal Pacelli became a major figure in world affairs. He saw much of the world during those years. A true cosmopolitan with a notable gift of tongues, he was papal legate to the Eucharistic Congress in Buenos Aires in 1934 and papal legate to Lourdes in 1935. In 1936, he visited America. A year later, on his way back to Rome from Lisieux, where he had been for the 13th Eucharistic Congress, he visited Paris and was received by the ecclesiastical and civil authorities with almost royal honours. On that visit, he preached from the pulpit in Notre Dame. The novelist, Francois Mauriac, heard him then and set down his impression of the cardinal. As through the very pavements of St. Peter's, 
one perceives the vibrant life of apostolic times, so through the cardinal's dignity of Pacelli, we saw the ardent soul of a humble priest. By that time, Pope Pius XI had appointed Cardinal Pacelli Camerlengo of the Catholic Church. It is an office which functions only between the death of a pope and the election of his successor. In the days between, the Cardinal Camerlengo assumes the administration of the Vatican and controls the arrangements for the conclave of cardinals. Four years after his appointment as Camerlengo, Eugenio Pacelli was called upon to exercise the functions of his office. On the 10th day of February in 1939, Pope Pius XI died. As tradition demanded, the Camerlengo came to the death chamber of the Pope. Three times with a little silver hammer, he tapped on the forehead of the dead pontiff, calling him by his baptismal name. Then, in the words set by ancient tradition, he announced the death of a Pope. The Pope is dead indeed. The fisherman's ring, the ring of Peter, was taken from the Pope's finger. In his role as Camerlengo, Cardinal Pacelli signed the certificate of death. Speaking as Secretary of State, he gave formal notice to the nuncios and members of the diplomatic corps of the Pope's death. Soon the age-old ritual that has, down through the generations, accompanied the death of popes comes into operation. The College of Cardinals takes over the government of the Church. The words, sede vacante, appear on proclamation and letterhead. The ring of the fisherman is solemnly broken. The matrices and the seals of the bulls of the pontificate that has ended are destroyed. The conclave of cardinals that will elect a new pope is convened. In the year 1294, in the Council of Lyon, Pope Gregory the Great issued a decree that had its roots in his memory of the three years waiting while the electors from the College of Cardinals failed to find agreement in the choice of a pope to succeed Clement IV. He who had been elected at the end of that three years of disputation decreed that in all future elections the cardinals qualified to vote should be isolated from the outer world. So it was of that election in the year 1939. The Cardinal Camerlengo put all in readiness. And that section of the Vatican buildings which overlooks the square of St. Damascus was made ready as a conclave enclosure. Apartments were set apart for each cardinal, Cardinal Pacelli himself being allotted apartment number 13. All exits were walled off, the windows were blacked out, the Sistine Chapel was prepared as a polling place. In the chapel, a stove was set up with a long pipe leading through a window. In this stove would be burned the ballot papers used at each voting. If a voting produced no result, then wet wood would be added to the fire so that a cloud of black smoke would signal to the waiting crowds in St. Peter's Square that no result had been arrived at, that a pope had not yet been elected. When a vote of the required two-third majority of the conclavists had been secured, the papers would burn with a clear flame, throwing off a cloud of white smoke, announcing to a waiting world that the cardinals and conclave had selected a new pope. All was now in readiness. At nine o'clock on the morning of March the 2nd, 1939, 62 cardinals of the Sacred College took their places in the Sistine Chapel. The first vote was cast. Each cardinal signed his voting paper folded over the paper to conceal his name and placed his seal upon the fold. At the foot of the ballot paper, he wrote a motto, and this too he folded over and sealed down. Across the center of the paper, he set down the name of his choice, and the papers were collected in a chalice and counted. Forty-two votes out of sixty-two would be needed to ensure the election of a pope. The balloting is secret, 
But after the first ballot, the clouds of black smoke told that no result had been reached. A little afternoon that day, smoke again billowed out of the chimney that was watched by waiting thousands, and again the smoke cloud carried the dark message that no Pope had been elected. It was a little after four o'clock in the afternoon when the cardinals again assembled. The evening paled towards twilight, and then, against the darkening sky, smoke plumed up from the Sistine Chapel, a plume of pure white smoke. Eugenio Pacelli had been elected Pope. The rigid rule of secrecy which binds each conclavist makes it impossible to say how the votes were cast in that election which elected to the papacy the first Roman in close on 200 years. But it is said that, it, that in the third and last ballot at this briefest of conclaves, 61 votes were cast for Cardinal Pacelli, his own vote going to the Dean of the Cardinals. A new Pope had been given to his people. The announcement was now made to the waiting thousands. The second day of March, 1939, the day upon which he was called upon to wear the Triple Crown, was the 63rd birthday of Eugenio Pacelli, Pius XII. He had not expected his own election. On the eve of his election, a newspaper man had seen his travelling cases ready packed, his passport visaed, in preparation for the holiday journey he had hoped to make to Switzerland when his duties at the Conclave came to an end. It was with resignation to the will of God rather than with joy that he accepted the great burden of responsibility that had been put upon him. It is told that on the day of his election, the new pope went to visit a cardinal who was confined to his bed with illness. The ailing man raised himself in his bed and began his apologies for so receiving the pope with the words, Your Holiness. The pope silenced the apologies and said a little sadly, as if he were picturing in his mind the isolation his high office would impose on him, not yet, not yet. For now, let it still be Francesco and Eugenio. In the days after his coronation, which by his own request took place in the outer loggia of St. Peter's before the thousands crowding the great square below, he expressed again and again his sense of personal unworthiness for the exalted office to which he had been called. When, in his first encyclical, Sumi Pontificatus, he gave thanks to his people for their worldwide expression of love and homage, he emphasized his sense of the humility of the man in the mighty shadow of the office. For we all know it, all those manifestations were not and could not have been addressed to our poor person, but to the singular and exalted office to which the Lord has raised us. And though from that first moment we felt all the great weight of responsible cares inseparable from the supreme power given us by the divine providence, it was a consolation to see the tangible demonstration of the indissoluble unity of the Catholic Church rallying all the closer to the impregnable rock of Peter. 
the great weight of responsible cares inseparable from the supreme power given us by the divine providence. They were prophetic words. Prophetic words indeed, in a world over which the clouds of war were already darkening during the spring of 1939. The story of the pontificate of Pope Pius XII is, in its early years, told under the shadow of that cloud of war. The story of the pontificate is the story of recent history. In those years, the voice of Pius XII has been the clearest voice in condemnation of the godless state. A war that convulsed the world, the threat of communism, the persecution of the church that has brought forth new witnesses of the truth, new martyrs for the faith. All these have been the background to the pontificate of the Pope of Peace. His own part in that scene is summed up in the words he spoke when, in the April of 1940, he issued a call to prayer for the restoration of peace amongst the nations. All know now that from the beginning of the war we have left nothing undone, but have championed by every means at our disposal in our public utterances, written and oral, and in conversations and interviews, the restoration of that peace and concord which must be based on justice and reach its perfection in mutual fraternal charity. We have left nothing undone that human power could do and human counsels could suggest to avert this accumulation of evils. We have placed all our hope in him who is all-powerful, who holds the world in the palm of his hand, who guides the destinies of peoples, the thoughts and sentiments of those who rule nations. We desire, therefore, that all should interweave their prayers with ours, that the merciful God, by his powerful command, may hasten the end of this calamitous storm. During the years of his pontificate, the Pope had seen the growth of the Christian democracy in Europe which helped to stem the flood of communism. He had seen the spread of Catholic missionary effort in Africa and in the Far East. He had, by his order in 1948, excommunicating communists and their supporters, stemmed the red tide in Italy. During those years, he proclaimed a holy year, a year of jubilee and prayer. His voice was heard throughout the world. And so the years of the pontificate of Pope Pius XII came to the year 1953. The Pope who had proclaimed the dogma of the Assumption, inaugurated the Marian Year, a year proclaimed to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the promulgation of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. On that eighth day of December, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, the Pope's voice was heard in the prayer which he himself had written for the Marian Year. Enraptured by the splendor of your heavenly beauty and impelled by the anxieties of the world, we cast ourselves into your arms, O Immaculate Mother of Jesus. Bend tenderly over our aching wounds. Convert the wicked, dry the tears of the afflicted and oppressed. 
comfort the poor and humble, quench hatreds, sweeten harshness, safeguard the flower of purity in youth, protect the holy church, make all men feel the attraction of Christian goodness.